0: Then. Yes, that was the awkward come on stage a little too early, for those of you who are wondering. It's good to see you all here. Uh, the last couple weeks, we have done a little stewardship update before the message. We want to be a church that talks um, in healthy ways about money. And uh, One of the things that I believe with my whole heart is not too many of us in this room are inspired to give when you see a budget. Who, who gets inspired when you see numbers? There's about five of you who are CPAs who get inspired when you see numbers, and we need you among us. We need you among us. Um, But most of us are inspired to give towards a cause, right? We're inspired when change, when difference happens. So um, one of the very neat things that happens as part of the covenant denomination, which is this small but growing denomination that that has its roots back to Swedish Lutheran roots in the uh, late 1800s, one of the things is... uh, our denomination is great at starting churches. And studies show that when you start a church, it's the best way to reach people with the good news about Jesus Christ. So in the last year, uh, we put a little picture together. In the last uh, year or so, you have seen a number of different faces who've come down and preached or led worship, Micah, Dave, uh, both Steves, and then a couple of years ago, Michael Bame over in Wasika, Real Life Covenant. And these are all church planters that when you give, when you give your offering, part of that money is then we give back to our denomination and to our district, and they plant amazing churches. And uh, we want you to know that you're making a difference. You're actually part of planting churches, whether you know it or not. You're part of planting churches that are reaching people with the gospel. Michael Bain wrote a little letter uh, to us this week uh, to help us understand that we're making a difference, even in Waseca, um, not too far from us. So he says this, he quotes uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.9, saying, How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of our God because of you? And Michael says this, We can never thank you enough for all you have done, Crossview. I want to help you understand the significant role you play in planting a church. For that purpose, it's important for me to note the three vines of support for a church plant in their first three years. It's financial contributions. So Michael and their church, financial contribution from the Evangelical Covenant denomination, from the Northwest Conference, which is our geographic area, and then fundraising that the individual church planner has to do. And Crossview was part of all three of those. Michael goes on to say, In 2009, Crossview invited Real Life Church to come and share a vision with them, and we were absolutely amazed at the generosity displayed. Though we did not ask for a financial gift, Crossview took a special offering for us. You sent us back to Wasika with nearly $5,000. $5,000 may not sound a lot, but if you're planning a church and raising support, it is huge. And that's what Crossview did. Your contribution was invested in more than just brick and mortar, it was invested in the vision of helping de-churched in Wasika connect with Jesus. Through five years of effective ministry, people are growing in their faith in Jesus. The majority of real lifers are first-time or recommitted believers. This would not have happened without your financial support here at Crossview Covenant. We thank you and we know that our great success is because of your great generosity. When we give, our budget, when we give, it is designed so that we can make a difference in the world for the glory of Jesus Christ and the goodness of the gospel. Amen? And we pray for us as we jump in the word. Father, um, God, I pray that you would help us realize that when we give, it's an act of worship and it's a a discipline, Lord, but I pray that you would um, help us to see the difference that we are trying to make for the glory of your name, for your kingdom, for the good news. through this local church, this one local church, God. Pray that we do that faithfully, we would do that in inspired ways, we would do that well. Be with us as we look at your word. Open our eyes that we would see exactly what you have for us this morning, God. Your spirit would speak. Pray it's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Amen. If you are new to Crossview, we are in a year-long series. You're, you're going to hear this every Sunday for a year, so it can just. some of you could probably start doing my intro for me. Uh, we are doing Wayfinding series, and we're using a tool called the Wayfinding Bible. So we'll go from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 in a year. And uh, we encourage you to bring your Bibles, uh, encourage you to buy a Wayfinding Bible. If you can't afford one, stop at the welcome desk. We would love to give you one. Um, We've been in Genesis, we talked about creation, we looked at the fall, the the unbelief and people thinking that they could actually be in place of God. We saw God working through Abraham and Isaac and Joseph through these family systems in Genesis and we came to Exodus and God sort of gets into the game almost a little more. He starts working through Israel and he frees them from Egyptian captivity and for some amazing reason, this will come as a shock to those of you that know your Bible, we are skipping Leviticus. Um, has anybody ever read Leviticus beginning to end? Yeah, like 12 of you. Great job. Um, skipping Le- Leviticus one week here in Numbers, and then I think we're going to be in Joshua next week. The first five books of the Old Testament are called the Torah. And that's why we spend a good amount of time in it. They're very, very important. And uh, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to wrestle with this idea. And I, I think it's a um, sort of a human existence type of question or type of thought, and it's how do we wrestle with the presence of God? Um, which you could almost go a level deeper and talk about the existence of God, but we, think about this. and this, You all are absolutely crazy. We're coming together this morning to worship a God that we can't see. I mean, seriously. That isn't, there's part of that statement that, that is profoundly like, what are we doing here? But then we go a level deeper, and, and we know the Bible's true and all that, and points to that God. But we go to the most, the, probably the deepest level, it's like, I know it's true because it's true in here. This yearning for the divine, this longing for something more. Like, I, I just, I know in the core of my reality that this is true. And I think as we hit Numbers 9, we see how in the Old Testament, how the Old Testament will point to the New Testament, how God's people experience that the presence of God. We want it, we desire it. It's why we gather together, it's why we do so many things. We are made, we are hardwired to interact with the divine. Numbers chapter 9. I'm going to read quickly through the first half and then the second half around the tabernacle is what I want to sit with this morning. Numbers 9, verse 1, it says this. A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. In the first month of that year, he said, Tell the Israelites to celebrate the Passover at the prescribed time at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. Be sure to follow all my decrees, regulations concerning this celebration. The Passover, if you're new to this Bible thing, the Passover is remembering how God had freed them. That their firstborn sons were spared by painting blood on, around the door. That was the Passover, that God would pass over their houses. And this became one of the three key annual festivals for a faithful Israelite. Verse 4, it says this. So Moses told the people to celebrate the Passover in the wilderness of Sinai as twilight fell on the 14th day of the month, and they celebrated the festival there. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses. But some of the men had been ceremonially defiled by touching a dead body. So they could not celebrate the Passover that day. They came to Moses and Aaron that day and said, we've become ceremonially unclean by touching a dead body, but why should we be prevented from presenting the Lord's offering at the proper time with the rest of the Israelites? There's this that that hardwiring even in them of wanting to be part of this, of wanting to connect with God. Moses answered, wait here until I have received instruction for you from the Lord. You're going to see in the Old Testament again and again and again as they experience these festivals, as they worship God, that often... The rules are nuanced in different settings so that they can truly interact with God. And when there's a question, when Moses is sort of like, okay, do we change that? Do we have to obey the exact nuances of that law? His go-to is to ask God. There's something there, right? When you got a question, the go-to is to go and interact with God. Verse 9. This is the Lord's reply to Moses. Give the following instructions to the people of Israel, if any, of the people now or in future generations are ceremonial and clean at Passover time because of touching a dead body, or if they are on a journey and cannot be present at the ceremony, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. They must offer the Passover sacrifice one month later at twilight. On the 14th day of the second month, they must eat the Passover lamb at that time with bitter salad greens and bread made without yeast. They must not leave any of the lamb until the next morning, and they must not break any of its bones. They must follow all the normal regulations concerning the Passover. But those who neglect to celebrate the Passover at the regular time, even though they are ceremonially clean and not away on a trip, will be cut off from the community of Israel. If they fail to present the Lord's offering at the proper time, they will suffer the consequences of their guilt. And listen. And if the foreigner living among you want to celebrate the Passover to the Lord, they must follow the same decrees and regulations, the same laws apply both to the native-born Israelites and to the foreigner living among you. They, I think there's something beautiful, beautiful that this isn't just for the Israelites ethnically. It's, it's, it's for all who want to come and worship this God. And they got to follow the regulations. It's, it's important, but it's for all who are among. Let's jump down to verse 15. On that day, the tabernacle was set up The cloud covered it. By the way, we we don't see that the cloud was sort of something supernatural, but God, who is supernatural, uses this cloud for very specific purposes to guide and direct his people. But from the evening until the morning, the cloud over the tabernacle looked like a pillar of of fire. This is the regular pattern. At night, the cloud that covered the tabernacle had the appearance of fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from over the sacred tent, the people of Israel would break camp and follow. And wherever the cloud settled, the people of Israel would set up camp. By, by the way, wouldn't it be great if, if God's will was sort of like we, we had an actual cloud? You know, you wonder, what, what does God want me to do? What's God's will? What if you had a cloud that just directed you to exactly what that was? The cloud's moving, follow the cloud. Doesn't work that way, though, does it? That, that's part of wrestling with the presence of God and, and understanding how we experience God. And In this setting, in the wilderness, that's how they followed God. like Literally, follow the cloud. When the cloud moves, you move. In this way, they traveled and camped at the, at the Lord's command wherever he told them to go. Then they remained in their camp as long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle. If the cloud remained over the tabernacle for a long time, the Israelites stayed and performed their duties to the Lord. Sometimes the cloud would stay over the tabernacle Tabernacle for only a few days, so the people would stay for only a few days, the Lord commanded. Then at the Lord's command, they would break camp and move on. Sometimes the cloud stayed only overnight and lifted the next morning. But day day or night, when the cloud lifted, the people broke camp and moved on. Whether the cloud stayed above the tabernacle for days or months or a year, the people of Israel stayed in the camp and did not move on. But as soon as it lifted, they broke camp and moved on. So they camped or traveled at the Lord's command. And they did whatever the Lord told them to do. Through Moses. Um, it's, this whole idea of the tabernacle and what is the tabernacle, I think is an absolutely neat thing that this tent and the cloud that was over it was God's presence and the leadership of God with them. And the tabernacle, in the Old Testament, you, you had two structures that sort of represented God's presence with them, God's presence on earth. It was the tabernacle first and then the temple. And the tabernacle, if you look at the passages describing how it was made, it was, um, it, it was beautiful. I mean, they had to put certain things in it it was absolutely ornate. And I think part of it is to what we talked about last week. It represents the otherness of God. That there is something in the majesty and beauty of who God is that is totally transcendent from who we are, right? But it's also a tent. It's a tent among them. That it's God with them. God is imminently right there among them. And that is what this tabernacle is pointing to. That it's God's presence there on earth. It's sort of in the wilderness. It's teaching them how to be God's people when they're not even in the promised land. That God is present with them in this temple. The last couple of weeks we talked about the Passover and the Exodus. And we looked at the Passover, and we saw how the Passover pointed towards Jesus, and that Jesus, in essence, is the new and better Passover lamb. That in his death, that we, are, we can be forgiven of our sins when we repent and turn towards Jesus. And that in the Exodus, we saw that the Exodus does the same thing. It points towards Jesus Christ, and Jesus is actually the new and better Exodus. That in faith and trust in him, that we experience freedom, that can only happen through Christ. And the cool thing with the tabernacle is the tabernacle points us right towards Jesus Christ again. Isn't that amazing? We talked about it on the very first week of this series. We looked at Luke 24, Jesus taking this couple through the Old Testament. He said, by the way, the whole Old Testament is about me. And we get in the Old Testament, it's like, it's about Jesus. That Jesus is actually the new and better tabernacle. That Jesus shows us fully and perfectly what God's presence among his people looks like. That the tabernacle sort of symbolized it, but in Jesus, God is now fully present among his creation. God is actually here. We see in Jesus how God comes in, how God lives. Tabernacling takes a completely different understanding. John 1:14, if you have your Bibles. We've been in this uh, text numerous times in the last year and a half that I've been here. And we'll be here time and time again. One of the most important passages that we need to put to memory. John 1 verse 14 says this. So the word became human and made his home among us. So the word became human and made his home among us. This word for made his home, the the, uh, Young's translation actually says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is the word for the imagery of what the tabernacle was supposed to be. That Jesus comes in and shows us what the tabernacle was supposed to do in its fullness. Of how it is truly about God coming and being with his people. The message version, I said this last week, the message version says, the word became human and moved into the neighborhood. Isn't that good? Because you've had, you've had the real positive experience of someone moving in your neighborhood. You've also had the, the neighbor moving in next door like, oh no. This neighborhood is going to... But Jesus, God in human form, comes in and moves into the neighborhood fully present. Listen to this. Fully present in a messy and broken world. The God in human form is fully present. And here's the crazy thing. Turn to John chapter 20, at the end of John. I, the, the second half, the last sort of third of John, is one of my favorite parts of Scripture. Jesus interacting with the disciples before he dies, and now he's, he's, he's uh, died and risen again. And, and we see John 20, 21, he appears to the disciples in the upper room, and he says, And it, again he said, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So he starts with, the word became human and dwelled among us, moved into the neighborhood, tabernacled among us. Now at the end of John, as the Father sent me, how was Jesus sent? Tabernacled among us. As the Father sent me, I now send you. What is God's will for your life? It's a tabernacle. What is God's will for you? It's to be a tabernacle. Here's here's one of the most amazing things that we are. We can wrestle with the presence of God and what does it mean that God is present and what about the existence of evil and what is God doing about it? Here's one of the most key things to understand that God's answer to what is going on in the world is you. You. God has chosen to be present in you and to be present in me. Bill Hybels, pastor down in Chicago, often says, the local church is the hope of the world. And here is God's crazy plan. There's no plan B. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That you and I are God's plan for redemption in the world. And our call is to go and tabernacle little word I, I want, I, I, it may be made up. Chris Willard told me that he found it online on a, uh, a uh, theology definition website. But I, I want to talk about tabernacling. Because if the Old Testament points towards Jesus and Jesus sends us, then we got to talk about what it looks like us for do, to do the same thing that Jesus did. And I think if we're going to do that and what we learn from Jesus is two really simple thoughts. One is this. First thing is this. Be fully present. John 1:14 Jesus came in human form, fully God, fully man, moved in. 100% among his creation, among his people. I don't know about you though, when I see the wording be fully present, I, it's hard to read even like being fully present in this day and age. I don't know about you, but for me is really hard. We're busy, we're tired, we have cell phones, we're always connected. Being fully present is a challenge. I'm distracted. I'm worn out. In our prayer time before the service, Mark Christensen read a little passage that he had read for devotions. And it was about being thankful. And he threw out this encouragement that the idea of of being thankful moves us into this different place. I'm reading a book by a lady named Anne Voskamp called One Thousand Gifts. Anybody read it? it it's absolutely fa- fabulous. I'm going to steal a lot of it for the message I'm preaching Wednesday night for our ecumenical service at Holy Rosary Catholic Church. It's, it's, it's a phenomenal book. But she says that she sort of takes this idea of and this challenge of living this Eucharist life. The Eucharist means the good gift. That thing that we do once a month that is called the Eucharist. It's the good gift. It's the gift of God for us. And she takes this challenge of beginning to live this good gift lifestyle to notice all the things around her and give thanks to God for them. And and you think about that. like That's being fully present. Being fully present is looking and noticing and, and thanking God for what is going on. And it allows me to move into this different place. Woody Allen once observed that 90% of life is simply showing up. That will be the only time I quote Woody Allen in a message at Crossview Covenant Church. Just showing up. Sociologist James Hunter, who's done a lot of work with sort of church and culture and spirituality and culture, he says that first and foremost, he says, Christ is faithfully present to us. And then he goes on to say this. He says, Faithful presence in the world means that Christians are fully present and committed in their spheres of influence. Whatever they may be, their families, their neighborhoods, volunteer activities, places of work. As followers of Jesus, we are called to a mission of engagement, not withdrawal from the world. Being fully present means that we move into the neighborhood and we're fully there. We notice what's going on. We see the world around us. We are fully present where God has put us. When I lived out in Philly, I got to meet this guy named Shane Claiborne. Some of you might might have read some of his books. Wrote a book I I think called Revolution. And Shane's story is is, is as radical as it gets. He's a preppy kid from Kentucky going to Eastern uh, University out in Philly. And he has this interaction with this, the homeless people, the homeless population in the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia. And God does something in him. And Shane and a group of friends decide that if they're really going to be the presence of Christ, they're going to move into the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia where they still live now about 20 years later. And by the way, the Kensington neighborhood of Philadelphia, you don't move into. You try and get out of moves into fully present trying to be hope and redemption where he's at what does it mean for you to be fully present this week in your normal actual everyday life what does it mean to be fully present for you maybe maybe this week it's one person you live the distracted hurried life that we all live. Maybe it's saying, God, this week, this one person, this one cause, this one place where I go, I want to be fully present. Show me how. Second thing is this. Be Christ. Be fully present and then be Christ. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. That, that word as is so important. That we are called to be Christ in our everyday, normal, actual lives. Be in the hope and redemption of Jesus for the world around us. It's where you do life. It's where you go, you are called to be Jesus Christ. How do you figure it out? How do you figure what it looks like to be Jesus around you? Here's a really, really bright idea. Read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are are biographies about Jesus, right? If you want to learn what it looks like to be Jesus around you, read about Jesus. Read who Jesus was, who he hung out with. Learn by grace how to act like Christ. Think about it. Who'd Jesus eat with? Sinners and tax collectors and hurt and broken people. Do that this week. We're all going to do it on Thursday, right? We get together with our families. Be eating with people who need you to eat with them. And often that's you. Think about what else Jesus did. Three years on this earth, success plan of all success plans find 12 people who don't get it and just hang out with them i mean it's not the success plan that makes sense for us right invest the majority of your time almost all your time in these 12 guys who seem like idiots and by the way they're like all of us and just hang out with them when i read when i read jesus and the disciples because I think that's, that's the call for all of us. It's, it's the call to go and make disciples. But like, if Jesus did 12, what if we tried two or three? <laughs> right? What if I was fully present in Christ in the life of two or three people? People that need to have a relationship with Jesus. People that maybe are hurting the poor among us. Read the Gospels. Jesus suffered. Jesus died. Jesus talked about God and the kingdom anywhere he could. Be Christ. So practically, what does that mean? One of my favorite things when I get to the end of the week is to look back and see what I've seen at Crossview throughout the week. Stories I've heard, what I've experienced. This idea of tabernacling, which I think we're all called to do. What does it mean? Real practically. Practically. Tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, what does it mean? I think tabernacling is is a few things. I think it looks like a friend who told me this week about a Bible study he's going to do with three friends who don't follow Jesus Christ. That's tabernacling. That's being fully present with people who need the love of Jesus. Tabernacling is a junior high girl choosing to speak positive words about her friends instead of gossiping. Whew! That's a good one, right? That's hard. That's being fully present and that's being Jesus. Tabernacling is cutting out a few Starbucks trips so a child in the Congo can be sponsored. Tabernacling is you being so fully present in your neighborhood that you live in in your normal house, with your normal neighbors, that if you ever moved away, there would be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth because Jesus left the neighborhood. Tabernacling is tomorrow morning. You and me getting up, putting our feet on the ground, and asking for the grace and strength and presence of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can be fully present and be Jesus throughout the day tomorrow. Amen? Jesus, as the Father sent you, you send us. And God, I look out across this room, you're sending us to a lot of different places. You're sending us to College, you're sending us to the schools in town you're sending us into our neighborhoods into the workplaces you're sending us into our marriages and you're sending us to be you you the one who perfectly tabernacled among us you now send us God so give us strength Give us eyes that see grace all around us, give us courage, so that tomorrow through this church and any church in town that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ, that people would see and experience you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.